Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. There's no place like the cube. Family, before we get into this episode, I want to take a moment to share something I recently learned about using people-first language when talking about HIV and people living with HIV. People-first language allows us to root out stigma and acknowledges the humanity of those living with HIV because they are so much more than their diagnosis. Now, this lesson came to me well into post-production, so there are times throughout this series that you may hear Dwayne and I refer to getting to zero new infections when we should have said diagnoses or using HIV positive instead of using more appropriate living with HIV. This podcast here is all about growing awareness of and compassion for HIV-related topics. And I choose to leave this note because it illustrates that this really is a journey, y'all. I am not perfect. As I continue to expand my own understanding of just how deep this thing goes. I promise. And I commit to sharing that knowledge with humility and transparency. Thank you for understanding and for your willingness to go on this journey with me. Peace. Family, welcome to episode three of Black HIV in the South, How Did We Get Here? I'm Anna Deshawn, your favorite queer radio personality, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dwayne Kramer. Dwayne, say hi to the people. Hey, people. Come on now. <laughs> you know, we friends now. We family at this point. And in this episode, we're going to talk about community. And we're going to get really specific about that. But community is a really big part of our everyday lives. And also in the context of HIV AIDS, it's a really big part of our healing too. And so I wanna talk about what community looked like in the 80s and 90s, the community that responded and the community that did not, especially when we talk about the South. At this point, y'all have heard from Nathan, okay? Nathan is my guy. He is the HIV Prevention Programs Manager for NASA the National AIDS Education and Services for Minorities. And so in my conversation, Dwayne, with Nathan, he talked a little bit about the South and, and why he thinks it's affected the South in such a significant way. And so we'll let Nathan take it. So, and, and it's, it's amazing, you know, how it happened because we realize that most viruses or incidents start in one pocket of a population. So we know that in the early 80s, they were saying that this was a gay cancer, and it was more specifically with um, white gay men. But what we know is that there's quite the intersectionality when we're talking about sexuality and people having sex and, um, and at the ways that people have sex. So regardless of the initial population, those same individuals are sleeping with other individuals who are sleeping with other individuals. And then when we specifically talk about the black population, many of us, tend to sleep within our community. So it's like diving in a tainted pool, if you would say. If everyone in that pool has HIV and we keep diving into it, it, it creates a, 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 a broader pocket of, of, 
of disease um, stats. And, and so I think a lot of how we got here and how it's so expansive, especially in the South, is because of the conditioning, the social norms, uh, uh, the cultural um, traditions here. You know, we, we've always called the South the Bible Belt. And that's not because they are more religious, is that they're more sanctimonious and that they, they have uh, concentrated efforts on keeping people in certain places and, and creating uh, environments where the things are, people are ostracized because of their behaviors. And so if I'm a religious individual in the South and I have these tendencies or, uh, or ways of expressing myself sexually, I'm going to do it in secret because I don't want to be outed. I don't want to be um, ostracized. I don't want to be alienated. And so when you have these secret undercurrents of activity, eventually they will arrive. You know, so everything that you do in the dark is eventually going to show into the light. And so with all of these people doing things on the underground, um, it, it's just, it just spreads. And it spreads because of stigma, because of shame, you know, because, you know, no one wants to tell someone that um, I'm living with this um, or that um, I'm affected by this. And it's not just sexuality. It's not just HIV. It's mental health. All the different things that we as black people feel that are not uh, pertaining to us because of distrust in the medical society, because of how we were um, separated through slavery. So there's no real cohesiveness. And so as a people, you know, there, there are only several instances that we actually rally together. And civil rights was probably like the last biggest uh, ushering in outside of Black Lives Matter. Um, so what we have to do is we have to get better at educating ourselves and realizing that there's no disease on earth that's segregating, that's discriminating against any one population, that you know, all of us you know, need to be proactive with our health, our physical, our mental, and our spiritual health um, in order to become whole and authentic beings. And so, so many times, we just don't. The Bible Belt is real. <laughs> the name didn't just come out of anywhere. The South is known for their Christian beliefs. But we also know there was a lack of response from faith-based communities in general. Tell me about your experience, Dwayne, with communities of faith in response or their lack of response to folks living with HIV. I grew up in the Catholic Church. And... Um... You know, again, homosexuality was a sin. You know, I was taught that early on. But I kind of left the church because I realized that there were a lot of teachings that clearly didn't line up. And I believed that, you know, Jesus and God loved everyone and that everyone was whole. So I pulled myself away from congregations that we're not affirming. And I found a place, you know, Glyber Memorial Church in San Francisco that was diverse. It was black, it was brown, it was white, it was Asian, it was gay, it was straight. There were poor people, there were rich people. So I found a place that was completely affirming. But that's not the story for, you know, relatives of mine in the South uh, that once their HIV status was known, or their sexual orientation, if they were identified as lesbian and gay, or if it was a man who had sex with men, they were often ostracized and kicked out of those churches. 
and they felt alone, um, isolated, and, um, you know, suicidal. Uh, so that's the story of many, many people, people that have left the South and their small communities, and they've moved to San Francisco. They moved to New York. They get out of the South because of how they were ostracizing the church in their communities, and they can find affirming congregations in other places. So um, the Bible Belt is real. Um, there are several ministers, preachers, pastors, reverends from James Cleveland to others that have died of the virus um, because they didn't talk about it. They didn't disclose. They kept it quiet. It's okay if you're gay and you're in the choir, <laughs> right? Or you're playing the piano, but anything else is not accepted for the most part. Ooh, we going to vote James Cleveland on this podcast. Well... He got a panel or two in the quilt. <laughs> got to talk about Let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. <laughs> yeah. So no, you're absolutely right. There was a, just a lot of isolation, leaving their families and having to find and create your own families. And, you know, that's really the message is if people leave you, try to find your tribe, your family, your community, your church, your affirming ministry, where you can find love and support that you need. Because at that point, all you have is a virus that can be treated. You're 100% good, whole human being. Find the people that love you and support you because they are there. And for me, what is so incredibly frustrating about the lack of response from the Black church specifically is because I know how much power the Black church has, how much influence they have amongst those that attend every Sunday, every Wednesday Bible study, Thursday choir practice, Saturday vacation Bible school. I mean, it is, Black church is so many ways, is the cornerstone of so many communities and specifically in the South, right? And so when, when there is silence, silence also speaks volumes. So when the Black church is saying no to talking about condoms, no to talking about safe sex, no, we're not talking about HIV prevention. It exasperates the issue. So another person that I had the opportunity to talk with at SOS, the Saving Ourselves Symposium, was Jimmy Gibbs. Jimmy is the National CIFAR Coalition Chair, and CIFAR stands for the Centers for AIDS Research. Now, Jimmy is a fourth-generation ordained minister and in this clip, he really digs into his experience as a Black gay man in the Black church, the experiences of other Black queer folks in the Black Christian church, and how the Bible and how God, from his perspective, in the Word, has prepared us to live and work with those who may not accept or love us for who we are. Let's take a listen to what Jimmy had to say. Um, when you look at people of color, we're weary and leery of research. We're weary and leery of anybody dictating what faith should look like. We're weary about, um, you know, how we're going to make it to the other side. We hear these Christian stories as a minister, um, an ordained minister for years now. You hear these stories. 
Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning their chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Stories that, you know, my childhood memories of singing in the choir were overwhelmed when I got older by people saying that I wasn't good enough for God. I wasn't good enough. I, I would never measure enough up to um, the saints that sat in the amen corner. And um, and I think people kind of gotten in their mind that as they did grow up, um, they would never, God would never welcome them. But I learned as a fourth generation minister, God's love embraces us all. And the extravagant welcome is there. We learn it in the 23rd Psalm that he prepares a table for you in the presence of your enemies. That was David talking. That's an extravagant welcome. People use it in death, but I like to use it in life because God prepares me to deal with all of these yahoos and naysayers out here that said you were never good enough, you can't do this, you can't do that, gay people can't do this, or straight people can't do that, or whatever those isms are, that extravagant table that David referenced in the 23rd Psalm that God prepares you to deal with people that don't like you. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Right. I mean, that's the extravagant welcome, um, drawing the circle wider. These are things that church should do, should be right. And in so many cases, they are not. And especially when we talk and about the eighties and the nineties and specifically around HIV, that absolutely was not the story. We were not trying to be expansive about the welcome. We were not trying to expand our table or our draw our circle wider. It was like, draw this circle as small as it can and keep them out. Yep, 100%. And I'll tell you that back then, absolutely 100%, there was the ostracization. There was the pushing out that there, you're no good. You're not worthy of God's love and all of that. And um, I'll tell you, things are changing today, partially because of the time we're in and the laws that are, you know, legalizing same-sex marriages and affirming churches and, you know, husbands married and wives married and uh, the, the progressive nature of our society. Um, and I'll tell you that if churches aren't bored, most churches, if they're not on board with that today, they can look at their pews and, and if those empty seats, 
might be the LGBTQ folks that have left their congregation if they're preaching against LGBTQ folks. So people are getting the message that, you know, homosexuality, HIV, different viruses have always existed. They will continue to exist, but we're all human beings. We're all worthy of God's love. And um, if someone finds themselves in a position like that, sometimes it's easier said than done. To say, well, leave your church and find another one. But if you're going to a place where people do not accept you, you have to leave. And during this time, with folks who are affected by HIV and AIDS in the 80s and 90s, if you had a church home, the church often did a lot of things for you, right? They would deliver meals and kind of take care of the sick and shut in and, you know, all these initiatives that the church does. So if, if you're the person with HIV or AIDS who's being ostracized from this community, then who are you leaning on for this type of support? And from the conversations I've had, the community leaned on themselves. Well, we had to. Because if, if you're kicked out of certain places, you got to find a community of people that are like-minded and they can love and support you and let you know that you're loved and God loves you and there is a place for you. What's been told is not true and we've always existed and will continue to exist. And like Nathan and Jimmy have both said, God doesn't put anything in front of us that we can't handle. And part of that handling, big ups to Marvell Terry for creating the Saving Ourselves Symposium, but that's really what we had to do. And we continue to have to do, which is save ourselves. And Jimmy had an amazing story around how they decided they were going to do just that. So let's, let's hear this story. It blew me away. When our folks checked into the hospital, people of color and some whites, they were shunned. They went into these big, you know, big hospitals. But when it came down to care, white nurses, black nurses, um, doctors, a lot of doctors that didn't have specialties in infectious diseases would not care for them. Orderlies would walk away. That's what they were called back in that day, orderlies. Nursing assistants is what we call them today, would not go into rooms. They would push food in trays outside of their rooms and would, or they would push it far enough that they thought that the sick person can grab it or have, have it gravitated to them. Our group of us got together and said, we're gonna get nursing degrees. We're gonna fix this. We're gonna be able to do this. So we mounted a coalition of about six to seven people that go to nursing school at night, do their undergrad during the day, because at night you can go to nursing school from six to nine and you were done. So we just accelerated that program and got out. And most of us finished between 87 and 88 and went right into the hospitals, right into nursing homes where they were discharged. We don't talk about it as much as we used to, but we know that we made a difference because we called upon our lesbian siblings who provided that motherly care because we told them, we said, hey, you know, we got guys gonna be released from the hospital. They have nowhere to go and they opened their arms and welcomed them in. So if they were discharged from the hospital, I could, you know, page, pagers, no cell phones, be paged. And once we paged, the operation took place. They were able to place them in community homes 
and um, the guys that we could nurse back, we nurse back. And yeah, we lost some, but we nourished some. Some came back. God wasn't ready for them. And these are the ones that are going to conferences and workshops and telling their story of living positive for 38 years, 40 years. These are the, um, uh, the brothers and sisters who, who made it. And because why did they make it? Because God has not finished with them yet. And that's what we have to remember is even in the midst of mess, there's God. Ooh, he said it. I, <laughs> I just, when Jimmy told that story, when Jimmy told that story, I got chills. They are the unknown heroes of this epidemic that will never get the flowers. They'll never get the accolades or anything like that. But they were there, sacrificed evenings, time with family, to ensure that their chosen family had someone there to support them. I mean, going to night school. And then he was like, I just did it for that point of time. And then once we all felt that the medical system had caught up and the science had caught up, we quit and went back to what we was going to be doing anyway. So they did it for a very finite amount of time, but they saved so many people's lives. Yeah, that they did. And, you know, he talked about the Shiro's. And let me tell you something. You know, we know, I, I told, uh, I was telling a sister, you know, I'm like, Black women run everything. Y'all run everything. And she said, the Fina Ward Southern AIDS Coalition Executive Director. He said, no, we don't, we don't run everything, but we do everything. And I said, well, you're doing both. <laughs> and that's really kind of the reality. It's that, that black women, you know, saved black men and black women. Because again, and I just want to kind of reiterate and let everybody know that those first few cases of people living with HIV were not just gay white men. They were black and brown men and women. So let's not pretend that from the very beginning of this that that we weren't affected. So guess what? From the very beginning of the epidemic, particularly black women were continuing to take care of us. And today they're still taking care of us. A hundred percent, because once it became apparent that the church was not going to be the source of that help, but so many that were inflicted, the community had to decide it was time to help ourselves. Absolutely, 100%. And I was talking to someone, and honestly, y'all, family, I don't know how true this is, but they said that because lesbians helped so much during the HIV crisis, that's why the L goes before the G in LGBTQ now versus it being GLBT. Child, I don't know if it's true or not, but it was just like, wow, the significance of it all. Because... No one talks about the lesbians that helped during that time. I had never heard about the support that they were providing in that way in any documentary or any story I'd heard previously about the impact that lesbians made during that time. And they're still doing it. And they still, in many ways, lead the movement. So what you're doing by telling... Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. McDonald's is not new to chicken. 
So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Our stories and telling our history is documenting that so that people will know because the lesbians have always been there for us. We're gay and same-gender-loving LGBTQ folks. I think it's beautiful. I also think that during times of crisis, right, we just never know how people are going to react. How are we going to react in this moment? How are we going to come together? But people give the LGBTQ community a lot of slack for how we stick together. But we stick together so intentionally because so many of our other communities chose not to support us. And so when something is afflicting someone or persons of the LGBTQ community, there is this force <laughs> that happens where you are very intentional about, we got to protect this because we know how easily it can be broken by outside folks who don't want to support. And we, and we know from our history what that isolation can really do and how it can affect us, really kill us. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I must say, though, that if we talk about the LGBTQ community, I don't know how much of a community it is, but that's another conversation because the racism and all the other isms exist within the so-called community. But Black LGBTQ folks know that we need to stick together and that it's only by us supporting ourselves and saving ourselves as Marbell so aptly named this conference that I believe in now is the it's 10th year or 20th year. I always try to age him, <laughs> but it's, it's decades. Um, and that's what the symposium is all about, bringing LGBT black folks together in the South, black people and figuring out ways that we can save ourselves. During that time, were there any other communities that were, that you can really say and point out and say, hey, they, this community really helped to support the work we were doing. This community was there in that moment outside of folks that identified as LGBTQ? Uh, absolutely, 100%. I think that, um, again, those are kind of the unsung heroes or the people, the family members that just stepped up because these were their loved ones. There were people that stepped up. There were people that stepped away. Um, there are, you know, heterosexual men, black men, that supported their wives, their children, their brothers, their sisters, their fathers, and their mothers. Remember, my father died of complications related to HIV and AIDS in 1986. And I was there with my sisters you know, in those final days. Well, my sisters were there the entire time because they lived with him, but we were all there together in those final days supporting him, you know, when he was probably less than 90 pounds. Um, so you don't hear a lot about those stories, about the children, the grandparents and all that, but the support has been there for a lot of folks. 
just not talked about. So those stories need to be documented too. So what was going through my head in that moment when you were speaking was just that oftentimes the black church gets a bad rap right. for not being inclusive for all those things. Right. Well, the black church does often get a bad rap for ostracizing folks from shutting people out that were gay or lesbian or living with HIV or drug users. But I will tell you that it's those little old church ladies in basements that today are memorializing, you know, people that have died of AIDS in the Asian Royal Quilt and making panels to celebrate the lives of these folks. And, you know, through that comes healing and remembering and honoring. Then finally celebrating these lives. And, you know, Jada Harris, you know, program manager at the National AIDS Memorial Quilt, will tell you that we wouldn't have the number of black and brown faces and lives memorialized in the quilt if it wasn't for those little old church ladies in those basements. And I've been there with her and seen 90-year-old mothers next to their younger sons making panels for people that they knew and people that they didn't even know. So we have to give the support and the acknowledgement for those congregations, for those people within those churches that are supporting people living with HIV, those that are living, and remembering those that are dead. Because every life is important. Every life needs to be memorialized. And, you know, we don't want anyone to catch HIV. We don't want anybody to die of any HIV-related complications. Let's support one another, and let's um, not just give a an entire bad rap to the Black Church when we know that there's people in those institutions that are supportive and loving and caring. As someone who grew up in two different Black churches, I grew up in a Black Lutheran church and then my family started a Black missionary Baptist church. I don't think that the Black church is any more homophobic than the right-wing white Christian churches out here across the country. What I know to be true, though, the first place is most folks, and I'll say most Black folks, find community is at home when you're growing up and in the church. And so... When you come out and both of those places reject you, kick you out, tell you you are not welcome, you lose all the community that you ever had. You begin to question what love really is. Then what happens is young folks have to go out and find community, find chosen family while trying to live authentically. And that in so many circumstances leaves them in very unsafe and unprotected places. Oftentimes, and, and this is a situation sometimes where you contract HIV or any other kind of virus that, that is viewed as something that is um, bad, that is dirty, that, that is something that only evil people catch. Um, 
you often have to figure out ways of surviving. I mean, I know young people that have been were kicked out of their homes because they uh, acknowledged that they were gay or someone found out that they were gay and or they found out they were living with HIV. These kids move to the cities and they're looking for something, for someone, some support. And let me tell you something, oftentimes they are almost forced because they have no other options to, you know, have survival sex. So they're preyed upon by people that take advantage of them because they know these kids have no place to go. And, and, and we want to, we don't want people, young people or any people to fall into those kinds of situations, but it happens a lot. And particularly in the South. So there are organizations in most, many of the cities of the South, many of the at least medium to larger cities, there are support organizations and places that young people can, can go and that we can provide numbers so that you can find out the kind of support places you may be able to go and get the support or the housing so that you can be in a safe space and continue to live your life and not have to, uh, you know, sell your body or to have unsafe sex versus safe sex because if you have unsafe sex, you're paid and get, make more money. So we want to want to connect people with resources, organizations, and groups that can be supportive of them. And well, they're out there. They they truly are. And um, you know, I'm hoping that we can connect, you know, folks that might be listening to this podcast to resources and places that that are safe spaces where they can get the support they need. Uh, you know, people do make their own families, but let's hope it's a family that's based on unconditional love and support and not love or trade. Dwayne, I love that. Because when we think about community, it comes in all different shapes and forms and places and spaces. And our community organizations are a big part of that. And so as we've been talking about how we got here with Black HIV in the South, in this last episode, we're going to talk about how how we get to zero new infection rates. Yes. And I'm excited to have that conversation because there are so many people doing the work and who are stepping up to say, I can be your chosen family in this moment, that I can be your community, and I'm building community around you to support you in so many beautiful ways. And I've seen it. I've met these people. They are doing God's work. Okay. And so y'all stay close. You're tuned into Black HIV in the South. How did we get here? Black HIV in the South is an exclusive production of The Cube. The show is produced by Latrice Sampson Richards of STS Productions and edited by Experience J of Sh just listen media follow us on social at the cube app and check out the cube to discover the best bipoc and qtpoc podcasts